know, anymore, uh, there's, there's lots of places and situations that require us to show proof of our identity, right? Uh, now, usually that means looking at your name or at your picture, what's your physical characteristics, like you know, your, your hair color and your eyes, shape of your face. And in the extreme, it might even include things like taking fingerprints or uh, a digital retinal scan or, or maybe even your DNA. Um, now for me, this is going to be a picture up here of my chaplain's ID badge, uh, my EA membership card, my driver's license, uh, all the stuff that I need to verify my identity. And identity is important, right? It's important not really to me because I know who I am. Uh, but like later today when I go see Dennis, I'm going to need it. Uh, it's important that other people be able to recognize me as I navigate my life through mundane things like needing to get on an airplane, uh, to drive a vehicle, open a bank account, all the way up to major things like getting access to someone at the hospital, like I'm going to do later today, so I can pray with them before surgery. Because to do any of those things, it's important that people know who I am. Because showing ID doesn't just distinguish, it divides. It divides between people who have valid airline tickets and those that don't. It divides licensed drivers from unlicensed drivers. It divides between people who are eligible to vote and those that aren't, except maybe last year. Did <laughs> <laughs> I say that out loud? Yeah. <laughs> and, and in really, really sensitive areas, it divides between people who can help and between the ones that can't. But like, for instance, um, not only can I get access to one of you in need at the scene of a, a car accident by showing my badge, uh, but also so that once I'm there, if one victim needs medical attention and another one needs prayer or grief counseling, that the folks in charge know that I'm the right person to help with one and definitely not with the other. Uh, so identification divides. And that can be really important, kind of like story I read from back in 2010 where this uh, CNN news cameraman was called to uh, a local California airport uh, to charter a flight to take him over one of those large forest fires that they were having back then. Do you remember that, Susie, with your daughter? And, and he was told that a twin-engine plane would be waiting for him at the airport. So he gets to the airfield, spots a plane warming up outside of the hangar, jumps in with his bag, slams the door shut and says, okay, let's go. Pilot taxis out, swings the plane into the wind and takes off. And once they're in the air, the, the cameraman instructed the pilot, now fly over the valley and take some low passes so I can get really good shots of the fire on both sides. Why, the, the, the pilot asked. And so because I'm the cameraman for CNN, he responded, and I need to get some close-up shots. Now the pilot got kind of strangely silent for a moment, until finally he stammered out, so what you're telling me is you're not my flight instructor? Um, <laughs> but 
So there is another tra tragedy of mistaken identity that I want us to look at today, uh, and that's the world's mistaken identity of Christ. Because, you know, right from the beginning, we've seen that the world has never really understood exactly who Jesus was. You know, even while he was here on earth, people couldn't exactly figure that out. So you remember, uh, Jesus himself asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? And he got a lot of different answers, didn't he? Some said he was John the Baptist reincarnated, or Elijah, or one of the other prophets. And as crazy as those sound, unbelievably, on another occasion, some Pharisees called Jesus Beelzebub, the prince of devils. And those themes of identity and division in and because of Christ are the themes that we're going to be looking at today uh, from the lectionary that takes us into the Gospel of Mark. So I hope you guys are following along in your own Bibles. And again, the, the lectionary readings are in the inside flap of the bulletin, so you can kind of know what the readings are for the week and where we're headed. But I'm going to be reading Gospel of Mark, chapter 3, beginning in verse 20. This is what it says. And then when he, and then that means Jesus, uh, went home and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. When his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, is that what it was mine? And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he's possessed by Beelzebul and by the prince of demons. He cast out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, and then indeed he may plunder his house. But truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And when his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. And church, this is the word of the Lord to us today. Amen. Amen. God, our Father, in your word are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so we ask you to open our eyes uh, that we may see the wonders of this day in these next fleeting moments. Empty our minds of preoccupations and distractions, and Lord, fill our hearts with the gift of faith until we see Jesus in his name we pray. Amen. So, you know, in the first three chapters of Mark, if you haven't had a chance to look at it, two themes really begin to emerge. Uh, and one is Jesus' popularity with the people, and the second is the inability for anyone to recognize, or, or maybe I should say to properly identify who he was. Uh, which caused division even within his own family. 
And those passages we read, I think, really further illustrate both of those facts. You know, we just read that such a large crowd had gathered uh, at the house he was visiting and that neither Jesus nor his disciples had been able to eat. Because our Lord was being mobbed by the crowd, just like celebrities are mobbed today. And when his family finally heard the news of all that Jesus was doing, and also because they didn't have a full grasp of his identity, if you're looking at it in the King James Version, it says very politely that they came to take charge of him. Because they thought he had taken leave of his senses. Now that's a gracious way of saying it. Uh, a lot more dignified than the ESV version that I read to you that said he's out of his mind. But that's what they meant, right? Which is not something we should really be saying about God, is it? But that was nothing compared to what the teachers of the law were saying. They said he's possessed by the Beelzebub. And, and as we read the Pharisees' accusation in the text is that Jesus cast out demons by the power of this greater demon that they named. Now that's a pretty serious accusation. And it's also absolute proof of their mistaken identity of Jesus. And even though the Pharisees' accusation was outrageous, you know, if left unanswered, it could, could dog Jesus' steps the rest of his ministry. So he had to speak to it. He needed to put it to rest. And even though there's a time to be silent, there's a time not to answer foolish charges, Jesus evidently didn't think that this was one of those times. Not in front of his family, not in front of his followers, or not with the Pharisees. This wasn't a time to just say, you know, uh, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. No, this was a time for a bold declaration. And then just let, let the chips fall where they may. Because the truth is, you know what, Jesus never sought to be politically correct. He did not say what people wanted to hear, but he did say the truth. And he didn't adapt to other people. He expected people to adapt to God's truth as he spoke. And he said very confidently to those who agreed with him and to those who didn't, that his words, which were given him by the Father, were a universal truth that would outlast the physical universe. In fact, he says it very plainly. He says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will what? <laughs> right? Yeah, they'll never pass away. He said that his words would be the test by which men and women would ultimately be judged. And church, I think it's about time that the world took all of those words very seriously once again. And Jesus announces a very basic principle in our relationship to him, relationship to him and that is that there's no middle ground. You're either with him or you're against him. Even when it comes to your own flesh and blood. So let's, let's start there. So remember, he actually said elsewhere in Luke chapter 12, he said, do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? No, I, I tell you, but rather the vision for from now on in one house there will be five divided. Three against two and two against three. There'll be divided father against son and son against father. Mother against daughter and daughter against mother. Mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother. And you know what, I know some of you have already experienced that. And you found out that the closer you've gotten to God, the further it's taking you from your family. Uh, and let me just say to you very candidly, if that's happened to you, take heart. Take heart. You're in good company. Because that happened to Jesus, as just as we read this morning. Right? So he's, he, he's busy teaching to this group of people that had gathered around him inside this house. 
And evidently it was quite a crowd, so much so that he and his disciples couldn't even have a decent lunch. And it's packed so thick that, that Jesus' own family couldn't get to him. So instead they had to send a message by you know, way of word of mouth, letting him know that they were outside uh, and they would like very much to see him. Today we call that an intervention. So they've come to call him outside for his own good. Because remember that Jesus' brothers didn't believe that he was the Messiah until after his death and resurrection. And we can be sure of this because John 7, 5 tells us plainly that for even his brothers did, did not believe in him. So, so I'm concerned for Jesus, the families come together. And they want to rescue him from the press of the crowd and from the interrogation of the religious leaders uh, hey, maybe they want to persuade him to go off to a safe place. Or maybe get him to just come home uh, with them until the religious leaders forgot about him. Or until they lost interest in him. But Jesus didn't need rescue, did he? Uh, so instead, Jesus uses this opportunity to teach an important truth. And that truth is that although Jesus had an earthly family, he also had a spiritual family. And you have to kind of picture... The scene here where, where maybe his mother Mary, uh, perhaps one of his brothers, tells somebody at the back of the crowd, uh, you know, hey, pass this message on to Jesus that we're waiting for him out here. So, so that fellow, you know, tells another person, and he tells another person, and soon the word reaches Jesus that his family's outside waiting for him. But instead of, of stopping what he was doing and going to see his mother and brothers, Jesus simply said, who's my mother and my brothers? Right? Now, I tell you, the crowd must have been shocked. His, his mom may have been devastated. His brothers honestly probably got angry because uh, they had traveled all the way up from Nazareth to get him and now he refused to even stop long enough to come out and talk to them. You know, maybe some folks in the crowd even thought, wow, that wasn't very nice. But you know, church, honestly, that's what's wrong with Christianity in America. As Pastor Cody Walkham often says, our problem is that we hang on to the 11th commandment Thou shalt be nice. We don't bother to believe the other ten that came before. Right? But Jesus' response to his mothers and brothers, although maybe in that instance made a tense situation even tenser, was designed to teach some very important truths. Namely, that spiritual business takes priority over earthly business. Right? You see, the Lord's family had their attention focused on earthly, fleshly concerns, but Jesus had his attention focused on carrying out the Father's business. Right? And to Jesus, nothing was as important as doing the will of the Father. And as God's people, we need to have that same kind of heart for heavenly things. Because you know, the Lord saved us to serve Him, and He has every right to expect us to place loyalty to Him and to His will ahead of ours. Uh, and that's really where the dividing starts. It starts with, are we more concerned with our own and with our family's needs, or with keeping God's word? Are we more concerned about the trivial affairs of this life than we are about the souls of men and women? You see, Jesus would have us to know that spiritual relationships take priority over human relationships. I mean, family is important. Help us here. But it is not all important. And on those times when the family comes between the believer and what the Lord wants, first, the believer is to choose Christ. And, you know, Jesus provided us a model to follow because, you know what, if your family events keep you out of church, something's wrong. If your family loyalties keep you from serving the Lord, 
something wrong. If your family commitments hold back your devotion to the Lord, something is wrong. There are times when your commitment to your family and your commitment to the Lord are going to crash or they're flash. And Jesus is trying to tell us that our responsibility is to serve the Lord. And that that is a superior responsibility than other human ones. Because you see, you know, if you think about it, every human physical relationship we have in our lives is ultimately going to end in death. But the spiritual relationships we have with Jesus are forever. And so when your commitments to earthly relations are in conflict to your commitment to heavenly things, church, your obligation is to heaven as the great one. So that's, that's family. Now on to his, his followers. Here's how Jesus put it. This is what we read. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. And you see, Jesus again makes a division, and he offers an identification. And he's saying here, in essence, you know what? Things are not always as they appear. He says, look around. You know, on the surface here, things seem like there would be agreement and connection, but sometimes it's not all it's cracked up to be. And you know, that's true for us in this modern day too, particularly in the midst of our modern day woke culture, uh, which is, as one commentator said, is not only really bad English, but it's really bad philosophy. Because the truth is, it's just the same old human rebellion dressed up in 21st century clothing and trying to hijack the civil rights era language for its own purposes. And it's happening right in front of us. It's happening in mainline churches all over America this morning in the guise of self-professed Christians who support BLM and the PLO and the LGBTQ and all those, the ones I call the alphabet people. Okay? All the alphabet people. The people who hear from their self-proclaimed pastors that America is fundamentally racist. And that if you're black or Hispanic or if you're female or if you're gay, that you're oppressed and you need special provisions and preferential treatment and societal concessions. Which honestly is really nothing more than the polite bigotry of low expectations. It has nothing to do, church, with the gospel. And if you dare to say that out loud, you'd be the one that's called racist. And it's altogether the grossest kind of injustice plastered over with the stage makeup of the word equity. And we need to start putting that out and pointing people who call themselves our brothers and sisters and mothers back to the will of God and back to getting their eyes off of externals like race, because there is only one, one human race, and getting their lusts out of the gutter, because church is only one right way to have sex, and that's married in between one man and one woman getting their lives right because there's only one way to be a true follower of Jesus Christ and that's to be one who does the will of God. Just like Jesus was pointing out to his followers that day in that crowded little house. And, you know, you may be thinking, well, well Pastor, I, I don't know how to do that. I don't know what that looks like. I don't even know what I would say. Well, here's a good place to start. It actually starts with yourself. By asking yourself, am I a genuine follower of Jesus Christ? Am I a true brother or sister? And if I am, do I act like it? Do I live like it? And could someone else, by looking at my life, say, yeah, that, that person is part of the family of God. Yeah, that, that person is a, a Christian brother 
or sister or mother. And not just so that people will look at us and go, wow, they're great. <clears throat> and they're really a decent person. But that they can see that your life is headed in the right direction. And church, that direction is toward Jesus Christ. So that covers family, followers. Now finally, and very quickly in the time I have left, the Pharisees. Uh, and, and what I want you to see here is kind of, you know, they were really the icing on the cake of this whole identity issue. Because basically in the first two segments when it comes to family uh, and followers, we've only really looked at the symptoms of the root problems. We've only seen the effect of a cause that's greater than the sum of all those nasty little parts. The bottom line in the ultimate sense is the dividing line of those who recognize the saving mission of Jesus and those who don't are where that division starts. Because, you know, while Jesus' friends and family were still kind of wrestling with all the implications of his earthly ministry, the Jewish leaders, who had a lot to lose in terms of wealth and influence, you know, if there's an actual Messiah running around and upsetting their man-centered religious apple parts, well, they had already made up their minds. Scripture says that the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying he's possessed by the and by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. To which our Lord replied, truly I say to you, all sin will be forgiven the children of man. Whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. And Jesus asked them a question. He called them to him and he said, to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? And Jesus' argument uh, here over the logical fallacy of their accusation it is as obvious as it is clear, and that's any kingdom or city or church or family that's divided against itself is going to fall. And, and for, the, for the devil to be casting out his own demons, that'd be pretty stupid. And Jesus is saying, you know what, there's two choices, but there's only one that fits the facts. Even as it divides up its hearers between those who accept Jesus' identification and those who don't. And what is that ID? You might ask. Well, church, Jesus has two of them. There is words and his works. His words and his works. But if someone rejects both his works and his words, rejects them completely by blaspheming their origin like the Pharisees did, there's no other witness left. Church, both of those IDs are here this morning. Both of those witnesses are here to testify. Both his word that you've heard read and preached, and his holy supper that's laid out here before us, pointing to his saving work on the cross. Do you recognize them? Do you recognize who they point to? Because, church, the dividing lines are forming up. So ask yourself this morning who do you say that he is? And if you're not sure, I invite you to listen as we pray together before we go to the table. So will you pray with me? God, our Father, it's truly right in our greatest joy always and everywhere to give you thanks and praise, especially in this Holy Supper, recalling that perfect sacrifice once offered on the cross by our Lord Jesus Christ, and asking you by the joy of his resurrection and the expectation of his coming again that you unite us in your truth and love so we can confess your name and sit together at one table. So come now, Lord, and continue your transforming work in this place and in this time. 
that eyes may be opened, that hearts may be radically changed by the good news of the gospel. And so remembering now your mighty acts in Jesus Christ, we take from your creation this bread and this wine. We ask you to pour out your spirit upon us and upon these your gifts, that this meal may be for us a communion with our Lord Jesus Christ. 